Hello there! My name is Fernanda Moura. I'm a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 24 of the podcast An Overview of English Literature. This episode is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published book, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to tell you about a brand new course at Books and Culture called the Jane Austen Club. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you can follow it at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the critical reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. You can register for the course via the website booksandculture.club and start your Austenian journey right away. You can also follow me on Instagram at books.and.culture, so you will be notified of upcoming online literature courses. So now let's talk about today's episode. This is the fifth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I host these sessions live at the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Every Thursday at 1 o'clock p.m. Central European Time, I go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel, offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this project to the podcast An Overview of English Literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen's Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time, and if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents, so I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoyed this format. I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with the fifth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. Now we are already in session five. So I would also love to know your opinion. How do you like Sense and Sensibility so far? And is this your first contact with Jane Austen? Or what else um, by her have you read? So last time we talked about chapters 10 to 13. And today we're going to talk about chapters 14 to 17. These are the topics that I have... (laughs) For today, so um, I hope you are as excited as I am. Do you have your tea, your coffee for our Jane Austen tea time every Thursday? And this is what we talked about last time then. So last time we talked about how the connection between Marianne and Willoughby is increasing so, um, and how they demonstrate their affection more openly. And at the time, an open display of affection meant much more than what it means today. So, um, the fact that they did not hide um, that they liked each other caused 
pretty much everyone to think that they had already talked about an engagement, that they were actually engaged, although the official announcement had not been made yet, so everyone was waiting. We also talked about how Marianne imagines herself as a heroine in a novel of sensibility. So we talked about what um, Marianne read. So she read a lot of romantic poetry and she read a lot of uh, novels of sensibility. So her literary repertoire affected the way she saw the world around her. So she did not see the world or reality through an objective way, quite the contrary. It's as if she had this um, romantic uh, lens and she looked at the world, at the people around her, especially Willoughby, when they first meet. She looks at them through an idealized manner um, and she, when she first meets Willoughby, she thinks that she is finally, it is finally her chance to be the heroine of a novel of sensibility. It is her chance now to fall in love, to be swept off her feet and to have a happy ending. So um, her imagination affects the way she sees reality very differently from the way that Eleanor sees reality. Eleanor is, as we talked about, the sense in the title, the sense in Sense and Sensibility. Eleanor is pragmatic. She wants certainty. She wants proof. Whereas uh, Marianne's reality is all constructed in her own mind. Uh, what else? So we also talked about how Marianne thinks that she has found her true love, her ideal match. Remember that her expectations for love were very high. Um, she wanted someone who had the exact same taste as she had, the same um, literary text, the same musical, the same musical taste, um, the same vivacity for life, the same energy for dancing, for singing, um, for being outdoors. And when she first meets Willoughby in that very romantic scene, so it is raining, it's, there's thunder and she's running down the hill and she injures her ankle and this mysterious charming man just comes out of nowhere and rescues her and brings her home. And from that day on, um, visits the family every every day, um, she, Marian thinks that she has finally found her match, someone who takes life as romantically as she does. We also talked about how Marianne and Eleanor looked or, yes, saw um, Colonel Brandon differently. So for Marianne at 17, Colonel Brandon at 35 was extremely old, an old man um, with, uh, what was it that she said, flannel, flannel uh, vests um, and no energy and pretty much about to die in her, in her mind. Um, and too old 
to feel love because for Marianne, love is something for young people, something for uh, to be experienced when you're young and never again. So she feels sorry for for Mr. Uh, for Colonel Brandon, but um, Eleanor does not think that 35 is such an old age, which indeed <laughs> it wasn't, even though at the time um, age perceptions were different because people lived um, not as long as uh, we do now. But um, Eleanor found in Colonel Brandon a companion, someone to talk to, someone to sit while the others are dancing. So... Um, they found uh, a lot of things in common because they are both sensible people, right? Um, also, we talked about one of Marianne's maxims, and that's, this is important, her disbelief in second attachments. Real love for her only exists once, um, and that's it. Real love only happens once. She does not believe in second marriages or second attachments. And she's very adamant about that. And while Marianne is very happy, enjoying life, um, Eleanor is not happy. She misses Edward Ferrers um, that she left behind in Norland. But very typical of her, she hides these feelings. She restrains her emotions. And then we stopped um, last time when everyone was gathered to go on a visit um, to an estate uh, that belongs to one of the friends of Colonel Brandon. So they were going to visit this estate, this beautiful mansion. Remember, we talked last time that it was common at the time um, for members of the upper class to visit uh, other people's properties. Um, but at the moment when they, are, they were about to leave, Colonel Brandon receives an urgent letter from London and he has to go. And what that means is that because the mansion belongs to a friend of Dr. of uh, Colonel Brandon, they could only go visit the house if Colonel Brandon was with them. So they had to cancel their plans. Everyone was very disappointed, especially Mary, Marianne and Willoughby, because they were very excited for this um, expedition, this adventure outside. Um, and Mrs. Jennings, she's a, quite a character. We'll talk more about her today. Um, so she thinks, so she starts talking about Colonel Brandon's private life, which was not proper. Huh? You, uh, at the time, personal uh, matters were indeed personal and should not be discussed in public, um, only if the person involved gave their consent and Colonel Brandon was not there. He was absent. So it was not proper to talk about his private affairs if he was not there. But nosy Mrs. Jennings thinks it's about Miss Williams. Remember who Miss Williams was? Colonel Brandon's supposedly illegitimate daughter. So he leaves uh, and he doesn't know when he will be able to come back. And Eleanor suspects that Colonel Brandon was hurt by love in the past and that um, 
that is why he's such a reserved man because he still feels the pain of this love um, of how he was hurt by love in, in the past. So Jenny says that she's enjoying sense and sensibilities, especially Austin's sarcasm and witty narrative. Yes, indeed, she's very witty. We'll see today some extracts of how she, um, as the narrator, so we saw, we, one of the things we talked about is um, how the narrative style in Sense and Sensibility changes points of view, right? So, in for instance, in one chapter, we're, I mean, in one paragraph, we're reading the story through, let's say, Marianne's perspective, her point of view, the way she looks at the world. And then the next, we may be reading it through another character's point of view. Um, and, whoops, sorry, in between, we also, um, we can also identify the narrator's voice. And the narrator's voice is very witty and sarcastic and passes judgment on others, other characters, especially characters that are supposed to be ridiculous, such as Mrs. Jennings, for instance. Jenny says, uh, not what she expected from Austin. Yes, and this is just, um, we're still in her early career with Sense and Sensibility. She develops this even better in um, her uh, more mature novels. And Miche is also here. Hi, nice to have you late, but here, no problems. You can always um, join anytime you want. Um, so let's start with chapter 14. The sudden termination of Colonel Brandon's visit at the park with his steadiness in concealing its cause, filled the mind and raised the wonder of Mrs. Jennings for two or three days. She was a great wanderer. Pay attention to this word, wanderer. As everyone must be who takes a very lively interest in all the comings and goings of all their acquaintance. She wondered with little intermission what could be the reason of it, was sure there must be some bad news, and thought over every kind of distress that could have befallen him with a fixed determination that he should not escape them all. So we start chapter 14 through the perspective of Mrs. Jennings, the nosy, curious Mrs. Jennings. And um, she wants to take an interest in all comings and goings of all of their acquaintance. Look how the narrator uses these words. Um, in all the comings and goings of all their acquaintances. So the narrator is passing judgment on Mrs. Jennings because that's not something she should be doing. That's none of her business, in fact. And the narrator says that she was a great wanderer. She wanders about everything. What could be the reason for Colonel Brandon's absence? What could be the reason for London calling him on such short notice? Um, so look how the, the verb wonder will be repeated in this part of the text, which is about Mrs. Jennings. Something very melancholy must be the matter, I am sure, said she. I could see it in his face. Poor man. I am afraid his circumstances may be bad. The estate at Delaford was never reckoned more than 2,000 a year, and his brother left everything sadly involved. I do think he must have been sent for about 
I do think he must have been sent for about money matters. For what else can it be? I wonder whether it is so. I would give anything to know the truth of it. Perhaps it is about Miss Williams. And by the by, I dare say it is, because he looked so conscious when I mentioned her. Maybe she is ill in town. Nothing in the world more likely. For I have a notion she is always rather sickly. I would lay any wager it is about Miss Williams. It is not so very likely he should be distressed in his circumstances now, for he is a very prudent man, and to be sure must have cleared the state by this time. I wonder what he can be. Maybe his sister is worse at Avignon and has sent for him over. His setting off in such a hurry seems very like it. Well, I wish him out of all his trouble with all my heart and a good wife into the bargain. So wondered, so talked Mrs. Jennings. Her opinion varying with every fresh conjecture and all seeming equally probable, probable as they arose. Eleanor, though she felt really interested in the welfare of Colonel Brandon, could not bestow all the wonder on his going so suddenly away, which Mrs. Jennings was desirous of her feeling. For besides that, the circumstance did not, in her opinion, justify such lasting amazement or variety of speculation, her wonder was otherwise disposed of. And here there is a change. So we go from the Mrs. Jennings' perspective to Eleanor's perspective. And look how, judge, how the narrator, very, let's say, subtle, in a subtle way, passes judgment on Mrs. Jennings again. Like every other second, she came up with a different explanation and all seeming equally probable as they arose. You see the sarcasm here. But Eleanor's wonder was somewhere else. Let's see what she was thinking about. It was engrossed by the extraordinary silence of her sister and Willoughby on the subject, which they must know to be particularly interesting to them all. As this silence continued, every day made it appear more strange and more incompatible with the disposition of both. Why they should not openly acknowledge to her mother and herself what their constant behavior to each other declared to have taken place, Eleanor could not imagine. She could easily conceive that marriage might not be immediately in their power, for though Willoughby was independent, there was no reason to believe him rich. His estate had been rated by Sir John at about six or seven hundred a year, but he lived at an expense to which that income could hardly be equal, and he had himself often complained of his poverty. Of course, here poverty is... Um, uh, depends on who's is relative. That's the word I was looking for. Um, poverty is relative because of Willoughby's extravagant lifestyle. So how he dresses, how he goes from one place to another, what he eats, what he does, um, six to seven hundred pounds a year would not be enough, but it would be more than enough for. Um, for the girls, for example, Eleanor, Marianne, Margaret, and their mother. Remember that uh, Mr. Darcy had 
10,000 pounds a year. So in Pride and Prejudice. So that's a whole other level of richness. So in comparison to, um, to Mr. Darcy, Willoughby was indeed poor. But in comparison with the working class or with the middle class, he was indeed rich. You see what I mean? But for this strange kind of secrecy maintained by them relative to their engagement, which in fact concealed nothing at all, she could not account. And it was so wholly contradictory to their general opinions and practice that a doubt sometimes entered her mind of their being really engaged. And this doubt was enough to prevent her making any inquiry of Marianne. Nothing could be more expressive of attachment to them all than Willoughby's behavior. Behavior was very important at the time, social conventions. So not only what you said, but what you did and how you did things um, said a lot, even if it was not written down so or spoken out loud. Communication was very indirect, especially in the upper classes. So Willoughby's behavior said a lot about his attachment to Marianne. To Marianne, it had all the distinguishing tenderness which a lover's heart could give. And to the rest of the family, it was the affectionate attention of a son and a brother. The cottage seemed to be considered and loved by him as his home. Many more of his hours were spent there than at Ellenham. And if no general engagement collected them at the park, the exercise which called him out in the morning was almost certain of ending there, where the rest of the day was spent by himself at the side of Marianne and by his favorite pointer at his feet. One evening in particular, about a week after Colonel Brandon had left the country, his heart seemed more than usually open to every feeling of attachment to the objects around him. And on Mrs. Dashwood's happening to mention her design of improving the cottage in the spring, he warmly opposed every alteration of a place which affection had established as perfect with him. What? he exclaimed. Improve this dear cottage? No, that I will never consent to. Not a stone must be added to its walls, not an inch to its size, if my feelings are regarded. Do not be alarmed said Miss Dashwood. Miss Dashwood, the Miss plus last name is always the oldest sister. So Miss Dashwood is Eleanor and Miss Marion is Marion. Miss Dashwood. So the practical Eleanor said, do not be alarmed. Nothing of the kind will be done for my mother will never have money enough to attempt it. I am heartily glad of it, he cried. May she always be poor if she can enjoy her riches no better. Thank you, Willoughby but you may be assured that I would not sacrifice one sentiment of local attachment of yours or of any one whom I loved for all the improvements in the world. Depend upon it that whatever unemployed sum may remain, when I wake up, when I make up my accounts in the spring, I would even rather lay it uselessly by and dispose of it in a manner so painful to you. But are you really so attached to this place as to see no defect in it? I am, said he, to me it is faultless. Nay, more, I consider it as the only form of building in which happiness is attainable. And were I rich enough, I would instantly pull Combe down and build it up again in the exact plan of this cottage. Combe is the estate where he 
um, where he will reside, right? Um, so Willoughby has developed this very emotional attachment to the place, the place where he met Marianne, the place where he fell in love, the place where he uh, got to know the Dashwoods better. So he doesn't want anything to change. So you not even one stone, nothing. So you see how he has a very romantic way of thinking, just like Marianne. He has this romantic attachment to the physical space, um, an emotional connection. And it's as if he wants to freeze this moment of happiness exactly as it is. So I wonder if um, he already knew what was coming um, and perhaps just wanted to um, make that moment of happiness that he knew could not last last as much as possible. Or perhaps it was just um, a coincidence, right? you see what I'm talking about in a little bit. And it's very funny to compare how um, Willoughby looks at, at the building, at the cottage, and how he would build exactly the same house anywhere else to feel this uh, happiness. Eleanor says, okay, so you want to build it exactly as it is, with dark, narrow stairs and a kitchen that smokes, I suppose, said Eleanor. Yes, cried he in the same eager tone, with all and everything belonging to it. In no one convenience or inconvenience about it should the least variation be perceptible. Then, and then only, under such a roof, I might perhaps be as happy at Combe as I have been at Barton. I flatter myself, replied Eleanor, that even under the disadvantage of better rooms and a broader staircase, you will hereafter find your own house as faultless as you now do this. There certainly are circumstances said Willoughby, which might greatly endear it to me, but this place will always have one claim to my affection, which no other can possibly share. Mrs. Dashwood looked with pleasure at Marianne, whose fine eyes were fixed so expressively on Willoughby, as plainly denoted how well she understood him. How often did I wish, said he, when I was at Allenham, this time twelve months, that Barton Cottage were inhabited, I never passed within view of it without admiring its situation and grieving that no one should live in it. How little did I then think that the very first news I should hear from Mrs. Smith when I next came into the country would be that Barton Cottage was taken. And I felt an immediate satisfaction and interest in the event, which nothing but a kind of pre-science of what happiness I should experience from it can account for. Must it not have been so, Marianne, speaking to her in a lowered voice. Then continuing his former tone, he said, and yet this house you would spoil, Mrs. Dashwood. You would rob of it of its simplicity by imaginary improvement. And this dear parlor in which our acquaintance first began and in which so many happy hours have been since spent by us together. You would degrade to the condition of a common entrance and everybody would be eager to pass through the room which has hitherto contained within itself more real accommodation and comfort than any other apartment of the handsomest dimension in the world could possibly afford. Mrs. Dashwood again assured him that no alteration of the kind should be attempted. You are a good woman, he warmly replied. Your promise makes me easy.
Extend it a little farther and it will make me happy. Tell me that not only your house will remain the same, but that I shall ever find you and yours as unchanged as your dwelling and that you will always consider me with the kindness which has made everything belonging to you so dear to me. The promise was readily given, and Willoughby's behavior during the whole of the evening declared at once his affection and happiness. Shall we see you tomorrow to dinner? said Mrs. Dashwood when he was leaving them. I do not ask you to come in the morning, for we must walk to the park to call on Lady Middleton. He engaged to be with them by four o'clock. So this is the end of chapter 14. 14. Not only does Willoughby want Barton Cottage to remain exactly as it is, this place where he felt so much happiness, but he also wants the people, the Dashwoods, to feel exactly the same towards him. So I wonder why he said that, right? Was he already anticipating a change and a painful change and he just wanted to keep things as they were? What do you think? In the meantime, I'm gonna give you a contextual note, which is quite interesting. So they said that they were engaged to have dinner by four o'clock. So you may wonder, four o'clock, what kind of a meal is at four o'clock? Um, so this is quite interesting because the way, was it page four, five, six? Um, the times that people ate were different. Um, so dinner by four o'clock, a conservative country style hour for serving the large important meal of the day. More fashionable people dined later, particularly when in London. Dinner at Hartfield in Emma is at four o'clock, at Mansfield Parsonage in Mansfield Park at 4.30, at General Tilney's in Northanger Abbey at five o'clock, and for the fashionable Bingley sisters at Netherfield in Pride and Prejudice, dinner is at 6.30. So that's quite interesting, right? So in the countryside, there is one very most important meal of the day, and that is dinner. Uh, so kind of, yeah, in between lunch and dinner nowadays. And in the countryside, it will be earlier at four o'clock. So I imagine that in the countryside, there were not many entertainment options. So people would... And remember, there was no electricity, so they depended on sunlight or on candles. So they would probably go to bed earlier. In, um, in the city, like in London, there were many other options of entertainment. So you could go to the theater, you could go, um, especially the theater, but you could also go to the opera, you could walk downtown. There was more light available in, um, in in the streets. So people would dine later as it was more fashionable. And um, I imagine also sleep later. Jenny says that it sounds like he knew things would change soon. I think so too. It's a kind of a foreshadowing in the air, like it's too happy to last. So I want to put this moment to freeze this moment, put it under um, a glass and keep it forever. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so let's continue with chapter 15.
Mrs. Dashwood's visit to Lady Middleton took place the next day, and two of her daughters went with her. But Marianne excused herself from being of the party under some trifling pretext of employment. And her mother, who concluded that a promise had been made by Willoughby the night before of calling on her while they were absent, was perfectly satisfied with her remaining at home. On their return from the park, they found Willoughby's curricle and servant in waiting at the cottage. Remember, the curricle was a two-horse carriage. Um, and quite posh. So he had this carriage and servant waiting for him outside. And Mrs. Dashwood was convinced that her conjecture had been just. So far, it was all as she had foreseen. But on entering the house, she beheld what no foresight had taught her to expect. They were no sooner in the passage than Marianne came hastily out of the parlor, apparently in violent affliction with her handkerchief at her eyes, and without noticing them, ran upstairs. Surprised and alarmed, they proceeded directly into the room she had just quitted, where they found only Willoughby, who was leaning against the mantelpiece with his back towards them. He turned round on their coming in, and his countenance showed that he strongly partook of the emotion which overpowered Marianne. Is anything the matter with her? cried Mrs. Dashwood as she entered. Is she ill? I hope not, he replied, trying to look cheerful, and with a forced smile presently added. It is I who may rather expect to be ill, for I am now suffering under a very heavy disappointment. Disappointment? Yes, for I am unable to keep my engagement with you. Mrs. Smith and that is his aunt. Mrs. Smith has this morning exercised the privilege of riches upon a poor dependent cousin by sending me on business to London. I have just received my dispatches and taken my farewell of Allenham, and by way of exhilaration, I am now come to take my farewell of you. To London? And are you going this morning? Almost this moment. This is very unfortunate, but Mrs. Smith must be obliged, and her business will not detain you from us long, I hope. He colored as he replied. You are very kind, but I have no idea of returning into Devonshire immediately. My visits to Mrs. Smith are never repeated within the 12 months. 12 months is a whole year. And is Mrs. Smith your only friend? Is Ellenham the only house in the neighborhood to which you will be welcome? For shame, Willoughby, can you wait for an invitation here? His color increased, and with his eyes fixed on the ground, he only replied, you are too good. Mrs. Dashwood looked at Eleanor with surprise. Eleanor felt equal amazement. For a few moments, everyone was silent. Mrs. Dashwood, was the Mrs. Dashwood first spoke. I have only to add, my dear Willoughby, that at Barton Cottage you will always be welcome, for I will not press you to return here immediately because you only can judge how far that might be pleasing to Mrs. Smith. And on this head, I shall be no more disposed to question your judgment than to doubt your inclination. My engagements at present, replied Willoughby confusedly, are of such a nature that... I dare not flutter myself. He stopped. 
Mrs. Dashwood was too much astonished to speak, and another pause succeeded. This was broken by Willoughby, who said with a faint smile, It is folly to linger in this manner. I will not torment myself any longer by remaining among friends whose society it is impossible for me now to enjoy. He then hastily took leave of them all and left the room. They saw him step into his carriage, and in a minute it was out of sight. So just as fast and mysteriously as he came, he left. Um, also, it reminds us of what happened to Colonel Brandon. So um, Willoughby was also called um, on very short notice and required to immediately return to London. But what is quite um, intriguing here and what Mrs. Dashwood and Eleanor perceive right away is that Willoughby is embarrassed because he's coloring. He doesn't know what to say. And he does not directly accept the invitation to come back soon. In fact, he says that he cannot flatter himself to, he doesn't even finish the sentence, to know or to, to make a promise of when he would be back, which is very strange. Mrs. Dashwood felt too much for speech and instantly quitted the parlor to give way in solitude to the concern and alarm which this sudden departure occasioned. Eleanor's uneasiness was at least equal to her mother's. She thought of what had just passed with anxiety and distrust. Willoughby's behavior in taking leave of them, his embarrassment and affectation of cheerfulness, and above all, his unwillingness to accept her mother's invitation, a backwardness so unlike a lover, so unlike himself, greatly disturbed her. One moment she feared that no serious design had ever been formed on his side, and the next that some unfortunate quarrel had taken place between him and her sister. The distress in which Marianne had quitted the room was such as a serious quarrel could most reasonably account for, though when she considered what Marianne's love for him was, a quarrel seemed almost impossible. But whatever might be the particulars of their separation, her sister's affliction was indubitable, and she thought with the tenderest compassion of that violent sorrow which Marianne was in all probability not merely giving way to as a relief, but feeding and encouraging as a duty. So remember, Marianne is all about feelings, exaggerated feeling, about feeling the feelings, to really uh, seeking feelings. Um, and Eleanor knows that this is going to devastate her and that she will be afflicted violently for a long time and we'll see how Marianne reacts to Willoughby's absence. In about half an hour, her mother returned, and though her eyes were red, her countenance was not uncheerful. Our dear Willoughby is now some miles from Barton, Eleanor, said she as she sat down to work, and with how heavy a heart does he travel? It is all very strange, so suddenly to be gone, it seems but the work of a moment. And last night he was with us so happy, so cheerful, so affectionate. And now after only 10 minutes notice, gone too without intending to return. Something more than what he owed to us must have happened. He did not speak, 
he did not behave like himself. You must have seen the difference as well as I. What can it be? Can they have quarreled? Why else should he have shown such unwillingness to accept your invitation here? It was not inclination that he wanted, Eleanor. I could plainly see that. He had not the power of accepting it. I have thought it all over, I assure you, and I can perfectly account for everything that at first seemed strange to me as well as to you. Can you indeed? Yes, I have explained it to myself in the most satisfactory way. But you, Eleanor, who loved doubt where you can, it will not satisfy you. I know, but you shall not talk me out of my trust in it. I am persuaded that Mrs. Smith suspects his regard for Marianne, disapproves of it, perhaps because she has other views for him, and on that account is eager to get him away, and that the business which she sends him off to transact is invented as an excuse to dismiss him. This is what I believe to have happened. He is moreover aware that she does disapprove the connection. He dares not therefore at present confess to her his engagement with Marianne, and he feels himself obliged from his dependent situation to give into her schemes and absent himself from Devonshire for a while. You will tell me, I know, that this may or may not have happened, but I will listen to no cavil unless you can point out any other method of understanding the affair as satisfactory as this. And now, Eleanor, what have you to say? Nothing, for you have anticipated my answer. So Eleanor has a different opinion. Then you would have told me that it might or might not have happened. Oh, Eleanor, how incomprehensible are your feelings? You had rather take evil upon credit than good. You had rather look out for misery for Marianne and guilt for poor Willoughby than an apology for the latter. You are resolved to think him blamable because he took leave of us with less affection than his usual behavior has shown. And is no allowance to be made for inadvertence or for spirits depressed by recent disappointment? Are no probabilities to be accepted merely because they are not certainties? Is nothing due to the man whom we have all so much reason to love and no reason in the world to think ill of? To the possibility of motives unanswerable in themselves, though unavoidably secret for a while? And after all, what is it you suspect him of? I can hardly tell you myself, but suspicion of something unpleasant is the inevitable consequence of such an alteration as we have just witnessed in him. There is great truth, however, in what you have now urged of the allowances which ought to be made for him, and it is my wish to be candid in my judgment of everybody. Willoughby may undoubtedly have very sufficient reasons for his conduct, and I will hope that he has but it would have been more like Willoughby to acknowledge them at once. Secrecy may be advisable, but still I cannot help wondering at its being practiced by him. Do not blame him, however, for departing from his character where the deviation is necessary, but you really do admit the justice of what I have said in his defense? I am happy, and he is acquitted. Not entirely. It may be proper to conceal their engagement, if they are engaged, from Mrs. Smith, and if that is the case, it must be highly expedient for Willoughby to be but little in Devonshire at present. But this is no excuse for their concealing it from us. 
Concealing it from us, my dear child, do you accuse Willoughby and Marianne of concealment? They didn't say anything but the way they've acted, right? This is strange indeed when your eyes have been reproaching them every day for incautiousness. I want no proof of their affection, said Eleanor, but of their engagement I do. So Eleanor is beginning to doubt that there ever was an, an engagement. She knows they love each other, but she needs proof of their engagement. Then Mrs. Dashwood says, I am perfectly satisfied of both. Yet not a syllable has been said to you on the subject by either of them. I have not wanted syllables where actions have spoken so plainly. Has not his behavior to Marianne and to all of us for at least the last fortnight declared that he loved and considered her as his future wife and that he felt for us the attachment of the nearest relation? Have we not perfectly understood each other? Has not my consent been daily asked by his looks, his manner, his attentive and affectionate respect? My Eleanor, it is possible to, is it possible to doubt their engagement? How could such a thought occur to you? How is it to be supposed that Willoughby, persuaded as he must be of your sister's love, should leave her, and leave her perhaps for months, without telling her of his affection, that they should part without a mutual exchange of confidence? I confess, replied Eleanor, that every circumstance except one is in favor of their engagement. But that one is the total silence of both on the subject, and with me it almost outweighs every other. How strange this is. You must think wretchedly indeed of Willoughby if after all that has openly passed between them, you can doubt the nature of the terms on which they are together. Has he been acting a part in his behavior to your sister all the time? Do you suppose him really indifferent to her? No, I cannot think that. He must and does love her, I am sure. But with a strange kind of tenderness, if he can leave her with such indifference, such carelessness of the future as you attribute to him. You must remember, my dear mother, that I have never considered this matter as certain. I have had my doubts, I confess, but they are fainter than they were and they may soon be entirely done away if we find they correspond every fear of mine will be removed. A mighty concession indeed. If you were to see them at the altar, you would suppose they were going to be married, ungracious girl, but I require no such proof. Nothing in my opinion has ever passed to justify doubt. No secrecy has been attempted. All has been uniformly open and unreserved. You cannot doubt your sister's wishes. It must be Willoughby there for whom you suspect. But why? Is he not a man of honor and feeling? Has there been any inconsistency on his side to create alarm? Can he be deceitful? I hope not, I believe not, cried Eleanor. I love Willoughby, sincerely love him, and suspicion of his integrity cannot be more painful to yourself than to me. It has been involuntary and I will not encourage it. I was startled, I confess, by the alteration in his manners this morning. He did not speak like himself and did not return your kindness with any cordiality. But all this may be explained by such a situation of his affairs as you have supposed. He had just parted from my sister, had seen her leave him in the greatest affliction, 
and if he felt obliged from a fear of offending Mrs. Smith to resist the temptation of returning here soon, and yet aware that by declining your invitation, by saying that he was going away for some time, he should seem to act an ungenerous, a suspicious part by our family, he might well be embarrassed and disturbed. In such a case, a plain and open avowal of his difficulties would have been more to his honor. I think, as well as more consistent with his general character. But I will not raise objections against any one's conduct on so illiberal a foundation as a difference in judgment from myself, or a deviation from what I may think right and consistent. So Eleanor will not judge Willoughby just now, because um, he may have a different way of thinking and a different perception of what is right and proper. So she's not going to do that. Um, but she has her doubts. Um, two things I would like to, to point out. One thing is that Mrs. Dashwood asks the question, could he be acting a part? Like, could he be acting, could he be just playing a role, pretending to love uh, uh, Arian all this time? They don't think so. They think it was genuine, the affection that he felt for, um, for Marian. And the other is that, okay, Eleanor needs proof. So they haven't said anything openly, maybe because um, his aunt cannot know of the matter yet. But Marianne, I mean, Eleanor will be um, satisfied if she knows that Willoughby and Marianne correspond, if they send each other letters. Now, why is that important? This is another interesting contextual information. The correspondence. So this refers to the social prohibition of a private correspondence between marriageable young people before an official engagement. And this is an extract from um, um, a novel from 1743. Only to observe these few short rules, never to write to anyone but one of your own sex, not to anyone whosoever without the permission of those under whose jurisdiction you may be and before whom you may safely lay the whole of your correspondence. So a man, a single man and a single woman were not allowed to correspond, to send each other letters. It was socially prohibited, was not proper unless they were engaged. So if they sent each other letters, then Eleanor would be satisfied that they were indeed engaged. So they were going to wait for that. Although Mrs. Nashwood says she does not need such proof. She has seen enough. Mrs. Nashwood says, you speak very properly. Willoughby certainly does not deserve to be suspected. Though we have not known him long, he's, not strange, he's no stranger in this part of the world. And who has ever spoken to his disadvantage? Had he been in a situation to act independently and marry immediately, it might have been odd that he should leave us without acknowledging everything to me at once. But this is not the case. It is an engagement in some respects not prosperously begun, for their marriage must be at a very uncertain distance. And even secrecy, as far as it can be observed, may now be very advisable. They were interrupted by the entrance of Margaret, and Eleanor was then at liberty to think over the representations of her mother, to acknowledge the probability of many, and hope for the justice of all. They saw nothing of Marianne till dinner time, when she entered the room and took her place at the table without saying a word. 
Her eyes were red and swollen, and it seemed as if her tears were even then restrained with difficulty. She avoided the looks of them all, could neither eat nor speak, and after some time, when her mother silently pressing her hand with tender compassion, her small degree of fortitude was quite overcome, she burst into tears and left the room. This violent oppression of spirits continued the whole evening. She was without any power because she was without any desire of command over her. The slightest mention of anything relative to Willoughby overpowered her in an instant, and though her family were most anxiously attentive to her comfort, it was impossible for them, if they spoke at all, to keep clear of every subject which her feelings connected with him. And this is the end of chapter 15. So it's not only that she was, <coughs> that she could not uh, hold her emotions, it's because she didn't want to. She wanted to feel. She had no desire to commend herself. And this is how we begin chapter 16, about how she feels towards feeling emotions. Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting from Willoughby. She would have been ashamed to look her family in the face the next morning had she not risen from her bed in more need of repose than when she lay down in it. But the feelings which made such composure a disgrace left her in no danger of incurring it. She was awake the whole night, and she wept the greatest part of it. She got up with a headache, was unable to talk, and unwilling to take any nourishment, giving pain every moment to her mother and sisters, and forbidding all attempt at consolation from either. Her sensibility was potent enough. When breakfast was over, she walked out by herself, and wondered about the village of Allenham. Look where she goes. She goes where Willoughby was. So she's seeking emotion. She has to feel those, otherwise she would be, feel ashamed. It would be inexcusable. You know, when things happen in a novel of sensibility, when things go wrong, the protagonists cry. They have um, violent uh, fits of um, um, affect affection and pain and they do not eat they do not drink they cannot sleep they cannot live and that's what she wants to feel she wants to feel that so she goes to walk around the village of Ellenham indulging the recollection of past enjoyment and crying over the present reverse for the chief of the morning the evening passed off in the equal indulgence of feeling she played over every favorite song that she had been used to play to Willoughby every air in which their voices had been oftenest joined, and sat at the instrument gazing on every line of music that he had written out for her, till her heart was so heavy that no farther sadness could be gained. And this nourishment of grief was every day applied. She spent whole hours at the pianoforte, alternately singing and crying, her voice often totally suspended by her tears. In books, too, as well as in music, she courted the misery which a contrast between the past and present was certain of giving. She read nothing but what they had been used to read together. Such violence of affliction indeed could not be supported forever. It sunk within a few days into a calmer melancholy. But these enjoyments to which she daily recurred, her solitary walks and silent meditations, still produced occasional effusions of sorrow as lively as ever. So she's the opposite of Mary of Eleanor. She does not want to hide her emotions. She seeks 
those emotions? How can I feel this sadness that I'm supposed to feel? So she plays the songs that they play together, that they sang together. She walks where they had been. Um, she thinks about him all the time, Every all the things that remind her of him. Um, she spends the whole day um, in these activities. Look at the expressions that um, the narrator uses here. Indulgence of feeling, nourishment of grief, courted the misery, violence of affliction, effusions of sorrow. It's a very exaggerated vocabulary because we're reading the story now through, Mar through Marian's perspective. And no letter from Willoughby came. A none seemed expected by Marian. Her mother was surprised and Eleanor again became uneasy. But Mrs. Dashwood could find explanations whenever she wanted them, which at least satisfied herself. Remember, Eleanor, said she, how very often Sir John fetches our letters himself from the post and carries them to it. We have already agreed that secrecy may be necessary and we must acknowledge that it could not be maintained if their correspondence were to pass through Sir John's hands. Eleanor could not deny the truth of this and she tried to find in it a motive sufficient for their silence. But there was one method so direct, so simple, and in her opinion, so eligible of knowing the real state of the affair and of instantly removing all mystery that she could not help suggesting it to her mother. Why do you not ask Marianne at once, said she, whether she is or is not engaged to Willoughby? Right, you probably thought the same. Why don't they ask her? But it was impolite to ask. It was a personal matter, remember. So even within families, conversation was never direct. It was always um, indirect, more through behavior than uh, speaking. And that's why there were so many um, miscommunication cases, so many things that could have been avoided if they just had had a direct conversation. From you, her mother, and so kind, so indulgent a mother, the question could not give offence. It would be the natural result of your affection for her. She used to be all unreserved, and to you more especially. I would not ask such a question for the world. Supposing it possible that they are not engaged, what distress would not such an inquiry inflict? At any rate, it would be most ungenerous. I should never deserve her confidence again. After forcing from her a confession of what is meant at present to be unacknowledged to anyone, I know Marianne's heart. I know that she dearly loves me and that I shall not be the last to whom the affair is made known when circumstances make the revealment of it eligible. I would not attempt to force the confidence of anyone, of a child much less, because a sense of duty would prevent the denial which her wishes might direct. Eleanor thought this generosity overstrained, considering her sister's youth, and urged the matter further, but in vain. Common sense, common care, common prudence were all sunk in Mrs. Dashwood's romantic delicacy. Mrs. Dashwood is just like Marianne, romantic delicacy. Eleanor, common sense, common care, common prudence. It was several days before Willoughby's name was mentioned before Marianne by any of her family. Sir John and Mrs. Jennings indeed were not so nice. Their witticisms added pain to many a painful hour. But one evening, Mrs. Dashwood, accidentally taking up a volume of Shakespeare, ex exclaimed, Oh, we have never finished Hamlet, Marianne. Our dear Willoughby went away before we could get through it. 
we will put it by that when he comes again, but it may be months be perhaps before that happens. Now, whenever something is mentioned in a novel, it's never random, never by chance. So why does Jane Austen choose the book to be Hamlet and not any other play by Shakespeare or any other literary text? So let's take a look at the, the footnote, what the editor here says. Hamlet, a play with a hero who offers an ominous model for Willoughby's brutal and mysterious rejection of Marianne. Also, Ophelia, a model for Marianne's subsequent illness and near death. So the fact that they pull out and they talk about uh, Hamlet brings, evokes a connection between the characters in Hamlet with the characters in Sense and Sensibility. So in a way, there's a connection, uh, like I've just read, between Hamlet and Willoughby and between um, Marianne and Ophelia. So um, what is foreshadowed here is not good because we all know what happens to Ophelia in the story um, and we all know what in Hamlet and we all knows what happens to their love um, for each other in, um, in Hamlet. Months, cried Marianne with strong surprise. No, nor many weeks. Mrs. Dashwood was, was, for, was sorry for what she had said, but it gave Eleanor pleasure as it produced a reply from Marianne so expressive of confidence in Willoughby and knowledge of his intentions. One morning, about a week after his leaving the country, Marianne was prevailed on to join her sisters in their usual walk instead of wandering away by herself. Hitherto, she had carefully avoided every companion in her rambles. If her sisters intended to walk on the downs, she directly stole away towards the lanes. If they walked, if they talked of the valley, she was as speedy in climbing the hills and could never be found when the others set off. So she wanted to feel this sol solitary melancholy. It's quite romantic. But at length, she was secured by the exertions of Eleanor who greatly disapproved such continual seclusion. They walked along the road through the valley and chiefly in silence, for Marianne's mind could not be controlled and Eleanor, satisfied with gaining one point, would not then attempt more. Beyond the entrance of the valley, where the country, though still rich, was less wild and more open, a long stretch of the road which they had traveled on first coming to Barton lay before them. And on reaching that point, they stopped to look around them and examine a prospect which formed the distance of their view from the cottage, from a spot which they had never happened to reach in any of their walks before. Amongst the objects in the scene, they soon discovered an animated one. It was a man on horseback riding towards them. In a few minutes, they could distinguish him to be a gentleman. And in a moment afterwards, Marianne rapturously exclaimed, It is he! It is indeed! I know it is! And was hastening to meet him when Eleanor cried out, Indeed, Marianne, I think you are mistaken. It is not Willoughby. The person is not tall enough for him and has not his hair. He has, he has, cried Marianne. I'm sure he has. His hair, his coat, his horse. I knew how soon he would come. She walked eagerly on as she spoke, and Eleanor, to screen Marianne from particularity, as she felt almost certain of its not being Willoughby, quickened her pace and kept up with her. They were soon within 30 yards of the gentleman. 
Marian looked again. Her heart sunk within her. And abruptly turning around, she was hurrying back when the voices of both her sisters were raised to detain her. A third, almost as well known as Willoughby's, joined them in begging her to stop, and she turned round with surprise to see and welcome Edward Ferrers. Look who's back, Edward Ferrers. Eleanor's love interest, the one whom they left back in Norland. So Edward Ferrers is the brother of Mr. John Dashwood's wife. So John Dashwood is Eleanor and Marianne's and Margaret's half-brother. And his wife is the sister of Edward Ferrers. And they did not approve, especially his sister did not approve of a relationship with Eleanor Dashwood because she wanted more to her brother. She wanted him to be famous, to be to have ambition. But it turns out that Edward has a very similar way of being and of thinking as Eleanor. Something that appalled Marianne because she thought he was boring, not very uh, energetic, um, did not have great taste in books, music, etc. But she, um, she appreciated how her sister Eleanor liked him. And he's back. He was the only person in the world who could at that moment be forgiven for not being Willoughby. The only one who could have gained a smile from her. But she dispersed her tears to smile on him and in her sister's happiness forgot for a time her own disappointment. He dismounted and, giving his horse to his servant, walked back with them to Barton, whither he was purposely coming to visit them. He was welcomed by them all with great cordiality, but especially by Marianne, who showed more warmth of regard in her reception of him than even Eleanor herself. Because Marianne, I mean, Eleanor is probably super happy, but she's hiding it. She's restraining her feelings. To Marianne, indeed, the meeting between Edward and her sister was but a continuation of that unaccountable coldness which she had often observed at Norland in their mutual behavior. On Edward's side, more particularly, there was a deficiency of all that a lover ought to look and say on such an occasion. He was confused, seemed scarcely sensible of pleasure in seeing them, looked neither rapturous nor gay, said little but what was forced from him by questions, and distinguished Eleanor by no mark of affection. Marianne saw and listened with increasing surprise. She began almost to feel a dislike of Edward, and it ended as every feeling must end with her by carrying back her thoughts to Willoughby, whose manners formed a contrast sufficiently striking to those of his brother-elect. The contrast between Edward and Willoughby, right? After a short silence which succeeded the first surprise and inquiries of meeting, Marianne asked Edward if he came directly from London. No, he had been in Devonshire a fortnight. A fortnight? She repeated, surprised at his being so long in the same county with Eleanor without seeing her before. He looked rather distressed as he added that he had been staying with some friends near Plymouth. Have you been lately in Sussex? said Eleanor. I was at Norland about a month ago. And how does dear, dear Norland look? cried Marian. Dear, dear Norland, said Eleanor, probably looks much as it always does at this time of year, the woods and walks thickly covered with dead leaves. 
I love this contrast between Alan, uh, Marion's romantic imagination, dear, dear Norland, in the fall with the, the, the dead leaves on the ground. And Eleanor, very pragmatic, say it should be as it always is at this time of year, filled with the dead leaves on the ground. Oh, cried Marianne, with what transporting sensations have I formerly seen them fall? How have I delighted as I walked to see them driven in showers about me by the wind? What feelings have they, the season, the air altogether inspired? Now there is no one to regard them. They are seen only as a nuisance, swept hastily off and driven as much as possible from the sight. It is not everyone, said Eleanor, who has your passion for dead leaves. No, my feelings are not often shared, not often understood, but sometimes they are. As she said this, she sunk into a reverie for a few moments, probably thinking of Willoughby that someone, as someone who shared and understood her feelings. But rousing herself again, now Edward, said she, calling his attention to the prospect, here is Barton Valley. Look up it and be tranquil if you can. Look at those hills. Did you ever see their equals? To the left is Barton Park amongst those woods and plantations. You may see one end of the house. And there, beneath that farthest hill, which rises with such grandeur, is our cottage. It is a beautiful country, he replied, but these bottoms must be dirty in winter. So Alan, um, Edward has similar way of thinking as, um, as Eleanor. He says, yeah, but it must be dirty, this um, place. And while Marion is appreciating all the hills and the grandeur of nature. How can you think of dirt with such objects before you? Because, replied he, smiling, among the rest of the objects before me, I see a very dirty lane. How strange, said Marianne to herself as she walked on. Have you an agreeable neighborhood here? Are the Middletons pleasant people? No, not at all, answered Marianne. We could not be more unfortunately situated. Marianne, cried her sister, how can you say so? How can you be so unjust? They are a very respectable family, Mr. Ferrers, and towards us have behaved in the friendliest manner. Have you forgot, Marianne, how many pleasant days we have owed to them? No, said Marianne in a low voice, nor how many painful moments. Eleanor took no notice of this, and directing her attention to their visitor, endeavoured to support something like discourse with him by talking of their present residence, its conveniences, etc., that's the kind of thing that Eleanor talks about. The house, its conveniences, etc. Exhorting from him occasional questions and remarks. His coldness and reserve mortified her severely. She was vexed and half angry, but resolving to regulate her behavior to him by the past rather than the present, she avoided every appearance of resentment or displeasure and treated him as she thought he ought to be treated from the family connection. So now you see that, let's say, Marianne's love life is in pause and Eleanor's continues with the return of Edward Ferrers. But he's so cold, so reserved. Marianne finds this so strange and Eleanor is so vexed, but she will not let it show. So she regulates her feelings, regulates her behavior and acts as if nothing's wrong. 
And this is the end of chapter 16. So we have one more chapter to cover today, and that is chapter 17. It's quite an interesting chapter. It's a dialogue um, chapter, um, not very descriptive. So uh, let's take a look. And by the way, what do you think of Edward Ferris' coldness to, to Eleanor? Why is he acting this way? Let me know what you think. Mrs. Dashwood was surprised only for a moment at seeing him, for his coming to Barton was, in her opinion, of all things the most natural. Her joy and expressions of regard long outlived her wonder. He received the kindest welcome from her, and shyness, coldness, reserve could not stand against such a reception. They had begun to fail him before he entered the house, and they were quite overcome by the captivating manners of Mrs. Dashwood. Indeed, a man could not very well be in love with either of her daughters without extending the passion to her. So I just imagine Mrs. Dashwood as such a friendly, nice, heartwarming woman, right? So he was trying, Edward was trying to be all cold and reserved, but the moment he sees Mrs. Dashwood and she's so nice to him, he just cannot keep up with the, this cold appearance. And Elnor had the satisfaction of seeing him soon become more like himself. His affection seemed to reanimate towards them all, and his interest in their welfare again became perceptible. He was not in spirits, however. He praised her house, admired its prospect, was attentive and kind, but still he was not in spirits. The whole family perceived it, and Mrs. Dashwood, attributing it to some want of liberality in his mother, sat down to table indignant against all selfish parents. What are Mrs. Ferris' views for you at present, Edward? said she when dinner was over and they had drawn round the fire. Are you still to be a great orator in spite of yourself? No, I hope my mother is now convinced that I have no more talents than inclination for a public life. But how is your fame to be established? For famous you must be to satisfy all your family. And with no inclination for expense, no affection for strangers, no profession and no assurance, you may find it a difficult matter. I shall not attempt it. I have no wish to be distinguished and I have every reason to hope I never shall. Thank heaven, I cannot be forced into genius and eloquence. You have no ambition, I well know. Your wishes are all moderate. As moderate as those of the rest of the world. I believe, I wish as well as everybody else to be perfectly happy, but like everybody else, it must be in my own way. Greatness will not make me so. And I think this is so nice. Uh, his family wants him to be someone that he's not. He has moderate tastes. He does not want to be distinguished he does not want to be famous he has no ambitions but that does not mean that he does not want to be happy he wants to be happy just like everybody else but like everybody else it has to be in his own way and greatness will not make him so i love this i even um added oh sorry even added um as a book flag to to highlight this part I think it's a very nice quote. And I agree 100%. What do you think? Do you agree with this quote by Edward? So he says, greatness will not make me so. Strange if it would, cried Marian. What have wealth or grandeur to do with happiness? 
And now they're going to have a very interesting conversation, especially because Marianne and Mrs. Dashwood are so different from Edward and Eleanor. Marianne says that wealth and grandeur have nothing to do with happiness. Grandeur has but little, said Eleanor, but wealth has much to do with it. Pragmatic Eleanor knows that you need money, at least some money, in order to be happy. Eleanor, for shame, said Marianne. Money can only give happiness where there's nothing else to give it. Beyond a competence, it can afford no real satisfaction as far as mere self is concerned. She uses the term competence. Competence uh, was a term that referred to the amount of money required to have a genteel way of life. So the amount of money necessary for everyday life, for a comfortable life, for a genteel way of life. Beyond that, Marianne says, beyond that, it's not required for happiness. Perhaps, said Eleanor, smiling, we may come to the same point. Your competence and my wealth are very much alike. So for Eleanor, the competence that is given to Marianne, richness only comes after that. To Eleanor, having this uh, competence to be able to have enough for a living is already being wealthy. You see how they, they look at money differently. I dare say, and without them, as the world goes on, we shall both agree that every kind of external comfort must be wanting. Your ideas are only more noble than mine. Come, what is your competence? About 1,800 or 2,000 a year, not more than that. 1,800 or 2,000, that's already... Um, Double what Willoughby has at the moment. Eleanor laughed. 2,000 a year? One is my wealth. I guessed how it would end. And yet 2,000 a year is a very moderate income, said Marianne. It isn't, right? But see, things. Um, that's not even being rich. A thousand pounds a year is a very moderate income, and that's a given. So uh, anything beyond that is not necessary. But a thousand, that's moderate, and that's needed. A family cannot well be maintained on a smaller. I am sure I'm not extravagant in my demands. A proper establishment of servants, a carriage, perhaps two, and hunters cannot be supported on less. Hunters are uh, horses or dogs, let me see, used for hunting. I think horses. Horses bred for fox hunting and valued for speed, endurance, and jumping. Very expensive horses, by the way. Eleanor smiled again to hear her sister describing so accurately their future expenses at Combe Magna, the state where Willoughby uh, would live. So that's happiness for her, the amount of money needed for them to live there. <laughs> hunters, repeated Edward, but why must you have hunters? Everybody does not hunt. Marion colored as she replied, but most people do. I wish, said Margaret, striking out a novel thought, that somebody would give us all a large fortune apiece. Oh, that they would, cried Marianne, her eyes sparkling with animation and her cheeks glowing with the delight of such imaginary happiness. We are all unanimous in that wish, I suppose, said Eleanor, in spite of the insufficiency of wealth. Oh, dear, cried Margaret, how happy I should be. I wonder what I should do with it. Marianne looked as if she had no doubt on that point. I should be puzzled to spend a large fortune myself, 
said Mrs. Dashwood. "If my children were all to be rich without my help, you must begin your improvements on this house," observed Eleanor, "and your difficulties will soon vanish." "What magnificent orders would travel from this family to London!" said Edward. "In such an event, what a happy day for booksellers, music sellers, and print shops!" You, Miss Dashwood, would give a general commission for every new print of merit to be sent you. And as for Marianne, I know her greatness of soul. There would not be music enough in London to content her. And books—Thomson, Cooper, Scott—she would buy them all over and over again. She would buy up every copy, I believe, to prevent their falling into unworthy hands. And she would have every book that tells her how to admire and twist an old twisted tree. Should not you, Marianne? Forgive me if I am. Very saucy, but I was willing to show you that I had not forgot our old disputes. What would they do with their money?、Um, um, Edward is imagining. Oh, Marian would buy all the music from London, all the books from London. Would buy them all so that the books would not end up in、um, uh, unworthy hands, and especially all books that would tell you how to admire an old twisted tree. So he's definitely. Making a reference to、uh, novels of sensibility or gothic novels that、um, explored the feelings evoked by, for instance, a twisted old tree, by ruins, by the grandeur of nature. I love to be reminded of the past, Edward, whether it be melancholy or gay. I love to recall it, and you will never offend me by talking of former times. You are very right in supposing how my money would be spent. Some of it, at least, my loose cash would certainly be employed in improving my collection of music and books, and I would do the same as、uh, Marianne. Although not music, I would improve my collection of books only. I think, yeah, and have more space to keep books. As you see, it's already full, <laughs> and the bulk of your fortune would be laid out in annuities on the authors or their heirs. No, Edward, I should have something else to do with it. Perhaps then you would bestow it as a reward on that person who wrote the ablest defense of your favorite maxim that no one can ever be in love more than once in their lifetime. For your opinion on that point is unchanged, I presume. Undoubtedly, at my time of life, opinions are tolerably fixed. It is not likely that I should now see or hear anything to change them.、Um, see the youth and stubbornness of Marianne's. Maxims. She still thinks that no one can love twice, and she doesn't think her opinion will change. Jenny says she would also definitely buy more books. Yes,、yeah, so we are like Marianne. We would buy books. I would buy books that tell us how to admire an old twisted tree, definitely. <laughs> and they would all have to come to London. Remember that for them, acquiring a book was much more difficult than for us. There was not just a bookstore. At Barton, they would have to order it from、uh, London. Marianne is as steadfast as ever, you see," said Eleanor. "She is not at all altered. She is only grown a little more grave than she was." "Nay, Edward," said Marianne. "You need not reproach me. You are not very gay yourself." "Why should you think so?" replied he with a sigh. "But gaiety never was a part of my character." Nor do I think it a part of Marianne's," said Eleanor. "I should hardly call her a lively girl. She is very earnest, very eager in all she does. Sometimes talks a great deal, and always with animation. But she is not often really merry. <laughs> That's weird for a sister to say. 
I believe you're right, he replied. And yet I have always set her down as a lively girl. I have frequently detected myself in such kind of mistakes, said Eleanor, in a total misapprehension of character in some point or other, fancying people so much more gay or grave or ingenious or stupid than they really are. And I can hardly tell why or in what the deception originated. Sometimes one is guided by what they say of themselves and very frequently by what other people say of them without giving oneself time to deliberate and judge. Now I wonder, is she still talking about Marianne or is she talking about Edward? How she has made the mistake of totally misapprehending someone's character before, of taking for granted what other people say of that person without giving herself time to deliberate and judge. I think it's an indirect um, hint at Edward's character and behavior, like he's a completely different person and she completely misunderstood his character. But I thought it was right, Eleanor, said Marianne, to be guided wholly by the opinion of other people. I thought our judgments were given us merely to be subservient to those of our neighbors. This has always been your doctrine, I'm sure. No, Marianne, never. My doctrine has never aimed at the subjection of the understanding. All I have ever attempted to influence has been the behavior. You must not confound my meaning. I am guilty, I confess, of having often wished you to treat our acquaintance in general with greater attention. But when have I advised you to adopt their sentiments or conform to their judgment in serious matters? You have not been able then to bring your sister over to your plan of general civility, said Edward to Eleanor. Do you gain no ground? Quite the contrary, replied Eleanor, looking expressively at Marianne. My judgment, he returned, is all on your side of the question, but I am afraid my practice is much more on your sister's. I never wish to offend, but I am so foolishly shy that I often seem negligent when I am only kept back by my natural awkwardness. I have frequently thought that I must have been intended by nature to be fond of low company. I am so little at my ease among strangers of gentility. And now I wonder if... Edward is saying that to Marianne and the whole room, or is it an indirect way to reply to, El to Eleanor's question, to explain that he's so shy and awkward, and sometimes it may seem that he's offending or that he's cold and reserved, when in fact he doesn't want to. It's just his shy and awkward character. He does not um, feel at ease among other people. Marian has not shyness to excuse any inattention of hers, said Eleanor. She knows her own worth too well for false shame, replied Edward. Shyness is only the effect of a sense of inferiority in some way or other. If I could persuade myself that my manners were perfectly easy and graceful, I should not be shy. So you see that Edward has a very low self-esteem and that he feels inferior and that's why he's shy. He says um, that if he could persuade himself of his graceful and perfectly easy manners, he shouldn't be so shy, which is, um, um, well, it's nice that he brings it up so then Eleanor knows, but it's so harsh that he thinks that of himself, right? Probably because of all the expectations of his family that um, uh, put a heavy burden on his back. Like he has to be famous. He has to be a member of the parliament. He has to be a lawyer. He has to have ambition. And he doesn't. 
But you would still be reserved, said Marian, and that is worse. Edward stared. Reserved? Am I reserved, Marian? Yes, very. I do not understand you, replied he, coloring. Reserved? How? In what manner? What am I to tell you? What can you suppose? Eleanor looked surprised at his emotion, but trying to laugh off the subject, she said to him, Do not you know my sister well enough to understand what she means? Do not you know she calls everyone reserved who does not talk as fast and admire what she admires as rapturously as herself? Edward made no answer. His gravity and thoughtfulness returned on him in their fullest extent, and he sat for some time silent and dull. So this is quite an interesting conversation, right? They like this chapter, this dialogue chapter. And you see how Eleanor and Edward take advantage of this conversation to talk indirectly. So they cannot be truthful, honest, and straightforward with their feelings. So they try to communicate to each other in with each other indirectly. And this is the end of chapter 17. So this is the end of today's uh, session. Um, I hope you enjoyed this four chapters. So we are um, moving towards the end of volume one. The volume one ends in chapter 22. Next time we're going to read and discuss chapters 18, 19, 20 and 21. Um, and that will be next Thursday, so the 9th of March, same time, 1 o'clock p.m. Central European time. Don't worry if you cannot make it live, you can always watch the recording. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. And before we, before I go, I would like to give you a book recommendation that I've been using a lot for developing and writing the classes for the theme course Jane Austen Club, which will be available on the 27th of March. So if you want to be part of this course, if you want to be one of the first to know when um, registration is open, go and sign up for the wait list on the website booksandculture.club. And the book is Jane o The Cambridge Companion to Jane Austen. I love the Cambridge Companions to everything. If I could, I would have them all. But this is very good for Jane Austen uh, lovers. A lot of um, contextual, historical, cultural information that will make your reading journey even richer. So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this fifth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents in this podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, we'll read and discuss chapters 18 to 21. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world and literary career, sign up for the online course, The Jane Austen Club, on the website, booksandculture.club. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature.